I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at the last three chapters of Job, Job chapters 40 through 42. You'll recall from yesterday's reading that God began speaking in Job chapter 38 and continued in Job chapter 39. Well, here in Job chapter 40, it's still God speaking. Verse 1, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Well, God began speaking here in Job chapter 38, as I mentioned a few moments ago. Job's never heard anything like this before, according to Job chapter 42, verse 5. God literally speaking to a man. God pauses as he speaks from the whirlwind to make a comment on Job's previous monologues. In verse 2, when he says, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Nope. A reply here simply wouldn't be appropriate or prudent here. Job immediately realizes that now would be the right time to remain silent and just let God speak. Who would want to be seen contending or reproving God? Let's remember something here. All of this started in chapter 1 when God speaks of Job to Satan in Job chapter 1 verse 8 when he says, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? However, this perfect and upright man has made some statements in the course of his monologues that strike us, well, maybe a little disrespectful toward God. Admittedly, Job's trial had made him a very confused man, and confused men say outrageous things under pressure. Job's comments along the way are quite provocative, but not sinful. Now remember, Job wanted to hear God speak. Well, here you go, Job. God continues expressing his dissatisfaction with Job's comments in chapter 40, verse 6. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud, and abase him. Look on every one that is proud, and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. If you recall, Job spent considerable time expressing his belief that he was unjustifiably being abused and even appeared to question God's right to allow him to be treated in such a manner. Job apparently had little or no more understanding of trial than his friends. 
Therefore, he demanded a hearing before God to make his case. Well, now he has God's attention as God speaks. A rhetorical question in verse 8 is better not answered by Job. When God says, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? In other words, is it proper to redefine God for one's own justification? Think about those implications. Better yet, how many people today have redefined their concept of God for their own perverted purposes? That may impress ignorant people, but God and God's people remain unimpressed with those who seek to vindicate their own rebellion against God's word by perverting the counsel of God to do so. Spiritually minded and scripturally minded informed people will see through the heresy. Verses 6 through 14 contrast Job's feeble abilities to those abilities of God. In other words, Job, if you had an arm like God, verse 9, then let's see what you can do. What was this trial all about? Well, there's no question about the righteousness of Job before God. That's confirmed in the very first chapter of the book of Job. Job is not being chastised for disobedience, as Job's counselors had suggested. However, we do see in Job a man who lacks an understanding of God's ways. Moreover, it's not like Job didn't have some things in his life that needed some work. We saw in Job chapter 29 what a proud man Job was before the current round of adversity. Well, no more. That pride is gone, and Job is all ears as God speaks. This bout of trials makes Job an all-new, willing vessel for God. And you know, that's exactly what trial does. It doesn't come upon believers because of rebellion against God, but rather to sharpen us and make us more usable for God's purposes. Now let's continue reading with chapter 40, verse 15. Behold now the behemoth, which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees, in the covert of the reed and fins. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river, and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through snares. In these verses, God uses an illustration from nature when he describes the behemoth. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word pronounced the same way in the Hebrew. But don't get too excited over a potential discovery of an extinct creature. This is the only reference to it and probably is describing a hippopotamus. There's really no way to tell for certain. It's just a very large animal, and that animal happens to be a vegetarian. To summarize the point of its mention, a hippopotamus is hard to hunt with the tools available in Job's time. Too big, too clunky, powerful, and very thick-skinned. It's the kind of animal that you just stand in awe as you observe, and then you just leave it alone. And then there's the Leviathan in chapter 41, beginning with verse 1. Canst thou draw out the Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put an hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? 
Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant forever? Will thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dares stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his niecings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as of out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold, the spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw, and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh the path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. He beholdeth all things. He is king over all the children of pride. Woe! Here's a whole chapter devoted to the magnificent and terrifying attributes of an extinct animal. Well, at least let's hope it's extinct. Easton's Bible Dictionary has this definition of the word Leviathan. He says it's a transliterated Hebrew word meaning twisted or coiled. Well, that didn't really help us much. However, when you look at the description of the creature given in this chapter, what do you get? Well, let me just say, I've been to the San Diego Zoo. It's a remarkable place. But they don't have one of these there, thankfully. What's the point here for even mentioning this creature? Well, here's the answer. God created this awesome animal. Who dares to presume to instruct or rebuke the creator of such an awesome creature? Many scholars suggest that this is a crocodile. Well, maybe. But then you have verses 19 to 21, you know, that fire thing out of his nose and mouth. I've never seen a crocodile do that, have you? It's more than likely a description of an extinct animal. 
whatever, just stay out of the water. Finally, we come to the last chapter of the book of Job where we get our answers. Job finally comes up in this chapter with something for which to repent. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Well, you see, in this, these six verses right here, Job replies very carefully. Keep in mind, this trial did not happen to Job because of sin in Job's life. However, Job does recognize where he has stepped over the line in the process when he says in verse 3, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Well, I've done that on occasion myself. How about you? Hey, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, are you still looking for some sort of an admission of guilt and repentance from Job? Well, here it is in verses 5 and 6. Job says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He repents, Job does, for the mere notion that he could possibly question God's motivation. That he could possibly question motivation, attributes, or character. How's that for remedy to the pride Job displayed in chapter 29? There's nothing like realizing that we're nothing compared to God or without God. Maybe it doesn't seem like much to you, but this realization will change a believer's life. Now, let's put this whole episode into perspective. Now, first of all, let's remember Satan's challenge to God in Job chapter 1, verse 11. Here's what he said. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. God permitted Satan to destroy most of Job's possessions, but Job did not curse God. So then, Satan issued a second challenge to God in Job chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what he says. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Job's wife even became part of the problem in chapter 2, verse 9, when she said, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. You will note that her counsel to her husband was precisely what Satan had assumed as his mission. Throughout Job's ordeal, he never once entertained the idea that he might curse God. All of his friends were of the belief that Job must have sinned. Job knew that he absolutely positively had not. In the end, Job had maintained his integrity all the way through. Yet he does admit to God here in chapter 42, verse 3, Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Well, here we see that the mission is accomplished. It was a tough road. But Job did not curse God, and Job did maintain his integrity, much to the dismay of Satan and to Job's wife. Job's trial was a character-building ordeal. It's the same process by which believers are made strong and capable today. 
I've written a couple of articles under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. One's called Trial, Testing, and Temptation. I'd recommend that you read that. And the other is the an article which differentiates between trial and chastisement. And that article is, well, of course, called Trial versus Chastisement. What about Job's misguided friends? Let's take a look at those friends as we look at verses 7 through 9. Verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept." lest I deal with you after your folly, and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. Well, chapter after chapter, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have irritated us with their homemade theology and their rebukes against Job. Now it's time for these three to get what's coming to them. And yes, I'm a little disappointed that there's no mention of Elihu here. He irritated me also, perhaps perhaps more than any of the others. I'll still cling to the understanding that the first comments of God from the whirlwind were right on the tail of Elihu's comments. Surely he felt strongly rebuked and embarrassed as his speech was immediately discounted by God in front of his whole audience. If that doesn't cause you to lose audience credibility, well, what does? Take a look at God's decree regarding the counselors. They must make their sacrifices before Job in verse 8 and have Job pray for them. In other words, not only did God take offense to their false counsel, but their offense was against Job as well. Job's forgiveness of these counselors was a critical piece of their restoration. Isn't that interesting? off the top of the head, but baseless counsel of another requires of them a sin sacrifice. Think about how Christians today throw around counsel based upon only an uninformed hunch. Maybe we should learn a lesson here about giving counsel. Here it is. Make certain it's based upon Scripture. Their incorrect counsel in the name of God earns them the standing of being sinners in need of forgiveness by God and from the very man upon whom they thrust their bogus counsel. We do have a happy ending to the book of Job. Wish it were longer. Beginning with verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had fourteen thousand sheep, and six thousand camels, and a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hopic. 
And in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this Job lived an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I would have liked to have had a couple more chapters devoted to Job's restoration. You know, as a personal reward to make up for all the depressing chapters that we read through. However, the most important point is made, God restored Job completely, and he experienced greater prosperity than before. So what about Job's friends and relatives? You know, the ones who were noticeably silent when they thought their friend Job was being judged by God. Well, now that God has spoken and expressed his favor toward Job, they're back, and with gifts. Isn't it funny how prosperity seems to attract friends? At first reading, there was one really big unsettled issue in my mind, and that's the issue of Job's wife. You remember, the one who told Job in chapter 2, verse 9, to curse God and die. Should she get out of this thing unscathed? Then I realized that she really didn't. Look at chapter 42, verse 13. He had also seven sons and three daughters. Despite the fact that she bore and had raised ten children to adulthood before, it would appear that even as an older woman, she had to do it all over again another ten times. Well, I'm good with that. Consider this. The book of Job provides us with our basis for understanding the purpose and course of trial in the lives of believers. It's an important doctrinal book for believers. What is taught about trial in the New Testament is founded on the principles found right here in the book of Job. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker. Thank you.